I'll never forget the first time that I'm with Buck O'Neill and a reporter asked him, Mr. O'Neill, who was the greatest baseball player that you ever saw? And I knew he had competed with and against Satchel. He had competed against Josh Gibson. He had competed against Cool Papa Bell. And I was awaiting him to mention one of those names. Surely it would be one of those legendary stars. To my surprise, it was the name Oscar McKinley Charleston. Perhaps the greatest baseball player you've never heard of. Negro League's icon, the late Buck O'Neill. The greatest major league ball player I ever saw was Willie Mays, but the greatest baseball player I ever saw was Oscar Charleston. Oscar Charleston played with the Indianapolis ABCs, and we old-timers say the closest thing to Oscar Charleston was Babe Ruth. Yeah. Dave Malarcher, gentleman Dave Malarcher, would say, some people ask me, why are you playing so close to the right field foul line? What they didn't know was that Charleston covered all three fields and my responsibility was to make sure of balls down the line and those in foul territory. That was the defensive prowess of Oscar Charleston. Oscar Charleston, who at age 15 enlisted in World War I where he served for several years. He had been a bat boy for the Indianapolis ABCs of the Negro Leagues and then would come back from the service and become a star for those same Indianapolis ABCs. As a matter of fact, he, along with the legendary Wilbur Bullet Joe Rogan, in my estimation, were the Negro Leagues' first two superstars. They were stars among stars. There's a world of stories to tell about Bullet Joe, and we will. But if Oscar Charleston was Babe Ruth who could field, then Wilbur Bullet Joe Rogan was Babe Ruth who never stopped pitching. He was a dynamic two-way star who hit 364 and led the league with 16 wins on the mound when he carried the Kansas City Monarchs to their first pennant in 1923. Hall of Famer Casey Stengel called Bullet Joe one of the best, if not the best pitcher that ever lived. But like I said, that's for another time. But Oscar Charleston, who was described to have the defensive prowess of Trispeaker, the tenacity of Ty Cobb, and the bat of Babe Ruth rolled into one dynamic package. He's in center field on the field of legends here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And according to Buck O'Neill, who said he never saw a center fielder who could go back on a ball the way Oscar Charleston could. So he played damn near behind second base in the outfield. And so you really couldn't bloop one in front of him. And unless you hit it on a rope, you couldn't get it over his head. Buck O'Neill would say that his instincts were uncanny. He just seemed to know where that ball was coming right off the crack of the bat. To put it in perspective, the old timers in the Negro Leagues who saw Charleston play, they would all relate the great catch that Willie Mays makes 
in the World Series. We all seen the highlight of Mays in the polo grounds where he literally ran a country mile to make the great over-the-shoulder basket catch. There's a long drive way back in Centerfield, way back, back in his Former Negro League great and 1954 New York Giant, Hall of Famer, Monty Irvin. No way that uh, Willie's going to catch it. And uh, I went over to probably uh, to get the carom off the fence, but uh, he went went over and made this wonderful over the you know over the shoulder catch, and then had the presence of mind to wheel and throw the ball back into Alvin Dark to keep Larry Doby from scoring you know from second base on a sacrifice fly. Terrific play. And quite frankly, the throw was better than the catch. But the magnitude of the moment and the sheer ground that he covered was absolutely phenomenal. That's really a home run everywhere else except the polo grounds. But all the old timers in the Negro Leagues would say, had that been Oscar Charleston, he would have been waiting for that ball to come down. That was the defensive ability of the great Oscar Charleston, who was the quintessential five-tool guy, hit for power, hit for average, could field, could run, could throw. In one season in the Negro Leagues in 1921, he led the Negro Leagues in home runs, triples, doubles, stolen bases, and batting average in the same season. He was an amazing player. He was temperamental. He was complex undeniably Oscar Charleston was great. Former Negro Leagues infielder Gordon Hoppy Hopkins, courtesy of the University of Baltimore. He was one of the most powerful hitters and one of the greatest outfielders that ever played ball. Some of the greater ball players like Chris Peak and all them guys recognized him. Believe me. Ty Cobb and all of them. My good friend Joe Posnansky, who is the author of the Baseball 100, for the athletic has Oscar Charleston listed as the fifth greatest player in baseball history. He was a special kind of player. He was tough. He would fight you in a heartbeat and he wanted to beat you as bad as anything. And, and to hear Monty Irvin, to hear other guys who faced Charleston, even though he was older by that time, his prime years had been way behind him. But when you start to look at some of the great teams that he was a part of, he's there in St. Louis with the great St. Louis Stars. He spent time with some of those great Pittsburgh Crawford teams. And, and of course, his play in particular Cuba or as you may have heard me reference in one episode of Black Diamonds, we're reminded of the rough-and-tumble style of Oscar Charleston as he slides into third base, 
spikes the Cuban player, and it incites a fight. And as he's surrounded by the opposition, Charleston is dropping them one after another. And of course, the military was the security at that game. And they were prepared to arrest Charleston. And and there's a classic photograph of Charleston. There's not a bruise on him. He's standing next to one of the officers from the military. And it is oftentimes reported that the general from the military who had witnessed this incredible display of courage and strength came over and said, leave him alone. Any man that strong, leave him alone. And Buck O'Neill would say of Charleston that he could take a baseball, put it between both palms, and turn the leather on the baseball. Just freakishly strong. And so he combined that power with great speed. As I mentioned, he ran the 220-yard dash in the Army in 23 seconds. So he combined that power, that speed, to turn himself into, again, what Buck O'Neill would say, arguably the greatest baseball player we never saw, Oscar McKinley Charleston. Former Negro Leagues infielder who played for Oscar Charleston's Philadelphia Stars from 1949 to 1951, Clifford Brown. I wasn't too close to him because I was scared of him. He, he, man, shucks. He didn't play nothing. When he say something, he meant it. He, he, didn't, he didn't play around, you know. He was a man. He was a good man, you know. He wants you to hustle all the time. All the time. We had a ball player named N.D. Davis. We was coming to Philadelphia from somewhere that time. And N.D. must be started drinking. He told him to shut up, be quiet. He got up and started raising hell with Arthur Charles. And he told Wilbur Hare to stop that bus. To him, get off that bus. He was a rough man, man. He had little short arms. He was rough. But you know, he in the Hall of Fame was a good ball player. There's a second phase of Oscar Charleston's illustrious baseball career. And that is as a manager, a great manager. He managed several Negro League teams, including the Philadelphia Stars, and eventually the Indianapolis Clowns, where he nurtured two of the pioneering women who called the Negro Leagues home, Mamie Peanut Johnson and Connie Morgan. Gordon Hoppy Hopkins, a Negro Leagues World Series champion in 1954 under Oscar Charleston and business manager Bunny Downs, courtesy of the University of Baltimore. We had two girls playing on the team. And uh, Bunny had already told me and schooled me, and he said, look, we don't want you messing with the girls. No kind of way, shape, or form. Those girls are here for business, and let's keep it that way. You know, whatever ideas you got, forget it. Because if you do mess with them girls, the girls are not going home, but you are. You know, the girls are the drawing card. If you mess with the girls, you're going to buy your ticket home. That's what he told me. And we had one boy one, one particular time got sent home because of, you know, a situation like that. But uh, he was really for real when he mentioned that because, I mean, the girls were the drawing card and people came out to see them girls. The first woman to pitch in the Negro Leagues and a 1954 Negro Leagues World Series champion with the Clowns, the great Mamie Peanut Johnson. He was a beautiful gentleman and he helped me with that. And I got a lot of help from a whole lot of fellas. They were good. 
because coming off a sandlot field is a whole lot different than going on a major league field. And I got a whole lot of help, and, and, and they were nice. The most memorable thing for me in baseball was winning the championship in 1954. That's the best thing I ever had for me. But uh, other than that, just knowing I was good enough to be there among some of the best ball players that 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 you know that ever played ball, you know, was was the best thing for me. Mm-hmm. Hey, look where I am and who I am and what I'm doing was was something that gave me inspiration for anything that I felt like I wanted to do, you know. And Charleston also played a great role in the integration of our game, as Branch Rickey had brought him in to manage his Brooklyn Brown Dodgers. And it would be Charleston who would recommend a young, dynamic catcher by the name of Roy Campanella to Ricky. And Ricky would eventually sign this young phenom who, of course, would only go on to become a three-time most valuable player in the major leagues. In early October 1954, Charleston fell ill due to a heart attack. He was admitted to a Philadelphia, Pennsylvania hospital and died on October 5th, 1954, at the age of 57. Charleston was buried in Floral Park Cemetery in what was a relatively nondescript gravesite. And in 2020, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum led an effort to put a proper headstone on the gravesite of the legendary Oscar Charleston. And while we could not have the formal ceremony as part of last year's 100th anniversary celebration, we were able to make sure that Oscar Charleston, who played much of his life in anonymity, would not lay at rest in anonymity with a headstone that was befitting of a player of his magnitude. Coming up next, a conversation with Jeremy Beer, author of Oscar Charleston, the life and legend of baseball's greatest forgotten player. Major League Baseball on Sirius XM is a fan's field of dreams. I can hear every game. From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? They're on the Sirius XM app. They built it knowing you would come. Ray. There's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. This summer, experience Negro Leagues 101, a celebration of the 101st anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. For more information, plus event schedules, video exhibits, and safety guidelines, visit nlbm.com and follow the museum on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC and follow Bob at NLBMPrez. Well, the name Oscar Charleston may not register for a lot of baseball fans, and as I've said previously, it should. He's a bit of an enigma uh, because 
what little we do know about him has seemingly been very misconstrued. You know, the myths about Charleston are not similar to the myths that are oftentimes associated with the likes of Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, Satchel Paige. These myths about Oscar Charleston makes him seem like he was some kind of mean-spirited, brooding player that nobody liked. And I think what we're finding is that it's completely contrary to the way that Oscar Charleston really was. And to put Oscar Charleston in perspective, folks, this is what the great Monty Irvin had to say. And I think this not only characterizes Oscar Charleston, but it characterizes most of the great players from the Negro Leagues. And Monty had this to say, Oscar Charleston was the Willie Mays of his day. No one ever played center field better than Willie Mays. Suppose they had never given Willie a chance and we said that would anybody believe there was a kid in Alabama who was that good? Or there was a black guy in Atlanta who might break Babe Ruth's home run record? No. And thus, that is the plight of most Negro League players, but certainly the plight of the legendary Oscar Charleston. Joining me today is Jeremy Beer, the author of Oscar Charleston, the life and legend of baseball's greatest forgotten player. And coincidentally, this biography was the 2019 Casey Award for the best baseball book of the year and also won Sabre's coveted Seymour Medal. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining me on Black Diamonds. How are you, sir? I am doing great, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you're doing the show. Well, you know, we're having a lot of fun with the show and bringing a lot of these Negro League players to life through these stories. And hopefully baseball fans in particular are learning a lot about the history of the Negro Leagues. When we talk about bringing players to life, you have absolutely done this with this incredible body of work that you put together on Oscar McKinley Charleston. What prompted you to want to write about Oscar? When I was a dozen years or so ago, reading through Bill James's new historical baseball abstract and his top 100 players of all time, I think the only name I didn't know, certainly in the top 50, was a guy who was number four, Oscar Charleston. And that was shocking to me. Uh, and so then I found out, doing a little more research, that he was from Indiana, like me. And I thought I knew all of Indiana's greatest athletes. That was a game that my friends and I would sort of play, you know, greatest basketball players, Larry Bird, Oscar Robertson, you know, football players, et cetera. But I'd never heard of Oscar Charleston. So the fact that the number four, the fourth greatest player of all time and someone from my own home state could be so unknown really um, uh, surprised me and troubled me. <laughs> and I thought um, eventually over time, I wanted to do something about that and make his story known. You know, I was fascinated, Jeremy, number one, that Oscar Charleston enlisted in the U.S. Army during World War I at age 15. Now, he lied, obviously, about his age. Yep. But what did you learn about that particular episode in Charleston's life? Yeah, it's, it's not easy to know exactly what happened, but it was 1912, actually, when he enlisted. 
uh, in the army at the age of 15, um, as you say, uh, we, we think he probably lied. Um, you have to have the signature of at least one of your parents in order to get into the army before the age of 18. So either he lied or one of his parents or both, um, allowed him to go in early, but, um, he went over to the Philippines. That's where he was um, based. He did not see action, uh, any any um, military action in in his three year stint in the army. But he saw baseball action. That's where he started his professional baseball career in the Manila League, which um, had four teams: an all army team, an all navy team, an all Filipino team, native Filipinos, um, and then had an all Marines team. But they shipped out and had to be replaced. And the twenty fourth Infantry was able to replace them in the Manila League, and that was an all-black uh, regiment. And uh, Oscar Charleston and a man named, uh, not yet known by the name Bullet Joe, but Wilbur Rogan uh, was on that team as well. So two future Hall of Famers are on the 24th Infantry team. The other teams had no one who sniffed the Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> but Charleston was only 15 or 16, actually, when he started playing uh, in the Manila League. And Rogan would have been a couple of years older. So they were very young, which is the only reason why they didn't completely dominate the league even more than they did. Charleston got a start as a pitcher. Rogan was the catcher. Um, Charleston would play some outfield as well, center field. And they, they did really well. They started off slow, did well. But the interesting thing that happened was um, they were both well-liked by the Manila press. They got selected for an integrated all-star game that happened in 1914. And so Charleston played in an integrated you know, all-star game, pitched a shutout in that game in 1914 in the Philippines, some, uh, what, 43 years before Jackie Robinson stepped out of a dugout with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, I mean, that is absolutely amazing because, again, we're talking about perhaps one of the greatest all-around players in baseball history that virtually no one knows anything about and we know him for those who kind of delve a little deeper into the world of negro leagues baseball and of course here at the negro leagues baseball museum oscar charleston is standing proudly in center field Mm -hmm. but the fact that he too started really as a pitcher yeah yeah a, a dominating pitcher it's almost like Little League, right, Bob, where the best athletes are going to be at pitcher and shortstop. And then as you go up, eventually you might move off those spots. Um, and he got to start in the Negro Leagues as a pitcher as well. When he, when he got out of the Army in 1915, went back home to Indianapolis and was signed by a man named C.I. Taylor, who owned yeah. the Indianapolis ABCs, or was a man at, yeah, he was part owner of the ABCs, as a pitcher, left-handed pitcher. Um, and Charleston was okay as a pitcher. I think he had an ERA around four or so from what we can reconstruct from box scores of the time. But, um, you know, on off days, there weren't that many guys on the roster back then. So he'd, he'd stick him in center field and he was just so completely dominant in center field, but a really shallow center field, like you were saying, Chris Speaker did. Uh, and that really became the tradition as far as I can understand, uh, figure it out anyway, in the Negro Leagues. Um, really shallow center field could go back on balls like nobody's business. And then he and he ended up being a really good hitter as well. So before long, he was uh, pinch pitching, right? Would come in, <laughs> a spot start, maybe a long relief if somebody really got hammered one day. But he was too good uh, on the, in, in the outfield and at the plate to um, have on the mound for much of the time. Well, Arthur John Holloway, this is how he described Charleston. A round face barrel-chested Hercules with smoldering leonine eyes. 
the players he interviews comments on those eyes with Ted Page summing up their views. Vicious eyes, still gray like a cat, greenish gray, and they were still. According to those Holloway quotes, Charleston was funny and knew how to joke around and have a good time, but they always, but that always behind the fun were his cold, deadly eyes. <laughs> Did you find any evidence well, of that? And maybe the eyes tell the story. Yeah, the eyes are something. I mean, I'll say that. The eyes, those are eyes you look into, even in the black and white photos that we have. Obviously, we weren't, we can't see them in their in their glorious living color, but um, there is something to those eyes. One of the photos I found that nobody had ever seen before other than his wife's and her family is um, that he had been separated from uh, late in his life. Um, there's It's a photo of him wearing a, like a, a driving cap. It's like dressed like the jazz age. It's early 20s. He's looking dead straight into the camera with those eyes. And they, if, if you've, those are piercing eyes if they were ever <laughs> piercing eyes. Now, whether they concealed, um, you know, anger, as was often said, or, um, uh, you know, whether they were leonine or not, I don't, I don't know, or cold. Um, I don't get the picture that they're cold. Um, but yeah, they were something to the eyes for sure. Yeah, he even Hallway says there that he was um, funny, like to joke around, and you get that's one thing you definitely get out of the literature. When you, when I talk to people who knew him, that he was jolly, that he laughed a lot. One one man said he had a beautiful personality. Uh, another man said he was like a father to him. So if he was cold, I mean, he had his warm spots then too. He, he yeah. warmed people up. He was really charming. So. I don't know if I would describe his eyes or anything else about him as exactly cold. Uh, it's more that he want, he ran hot, right? And yeah. he was highly competitive, got into some fights on the field. Um, but he also, for that very reason, was charming and affable and won over the um, affection of people kind of even high on the social ladder, you know, for the time. Uh, he was very charming. Yeah, because I the, the, the way I see it is that it really wasn't Oscar Charleston's starting fights he didn't mind partaking in the fight once they got started. That is 100% correct. (laughs) Almost all of his fights were him getting involved when they'd already started. Now, I'm not saying he was completely innocent. There were several times we know of where he may have, he took a swing at an umpire or somebody on the field or whatever. Um, But most of the time, he was jumping into fights that had already started. He liked it. He loved boxing. A huge boxing fan. His brother was a boxing champ in Indianapolis. His uh, personal scrapbook is filled with boxing clippings. Um, so he liked, he just liked to fight <laughs> and he was good at it, you know, <laughs> he was strong. Well, you know, again, if you enlist in the army when you're 15 years old, yeah. you probably got a little rough and tumble in you. That's right. And, and the scrapbook that Jeremy just referenced, coincidentally, is here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. That's exactly where it is. Yep. Yeah, now we're very proud that we have the scrapbook that belonged to Oscar Charleston here and, and it's not on public display because it's so very fragile, but the content of it is really significant. And it really substantiates and documents his time in particular in Cuba. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot in there from his time in Cuba where he played, gosh, 10 or 11 winters in Cuba um, uh, from starting in the mid-teens uh, but really consistently from, I think, 1921 or so through 1930. And um, 
Yeah, he played baseball year round. Cuba was the winter stop for three months or so. Usually he would go there with his wife, Jane, uh, once at least after they got married. And um, he was a star in Cuba. He became yeah. a legend. He was uh, later on, if you read accounts of people, um, at least the ones I have read in English, people who were uh, grew up in Cuba and later came to America, a lot of times they'll talk about, you know, Oscar Charleston was almost the Babe Ruth, right, of of, of Cuba, at least as it, with respect to players from the Negro Leagues who had come down there and play. And he was around the same time, of course, when Ruth was dominating the American League. So, yeah, he was a legend. He played on legendary teams in Cuba, taught himself Spanish. That, that scrapbook, Bob, as you know, in the margins of Cuban newspaper clippings, he's, he's clipped out or his wife has clipped out. Uh, in his hand, in the margins, is often there is a translation of the article from Spanish to English. Yes. Um, and that's happening. That's within like, well, unless he went back and did it later, within like three or four years, he seems to have taught himself Spanish well enough to translate, um, which gives you an indication of how smart Charleston was. Cuban native and a former pitcher for Oscar Charleston's Indianapolis Clowns, Pedro Sierra. He's one of the greatest center fielders in, in the Negro League. Mm-hmm. And, and for him to try to speak a little bit of Spanish, because he had played baseball in Cuba on a winter month, and he says, uh, Chico Hombre no gusta Curva. I mean, to get that guy doesn't like a curveball, you know. And that mentoring went as, as well with the older players who, uh, you know, letting you know what, to, what not to do, what to do. Well, you know, there was uh, something that the legendary Josh Gibson also said about learning Spanish. He says, it's amazing how quickly you learn Spanish when you're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that doesn't hurt. <laughs> but no, I love those cartoons because they depict him almost larger than life. That's right. And, and you see these cartoons of him and they've got the big bat and he's carrying this big bat mm-hmm. like it's something out of the Flintstones because right. of the power that he possessed. And this is still relatively early on in his career, but mm-hmm. you get an indication of the tools that Oscar Charleston possessed as a player. He seemed to really impress the Cubans for at least a couple of reasons. One was the range he had in center field. The outfields in Cuba at that time, anyway, were huge. Uh, they're mammoth outfields. So if he had range, he really made a big difference uh, on for the team. The second thing was that because the fences, the outfields were so huge, the fences were so deep, um, he was one of the few players who could clear them consistently um, and hit home runs, uh, you know, out of the park home runs, not inside yeah. the yeah, yeah. And so those two things together. And then the third thing was his his charm. He seemed now he got in a, a famous fight in Cuba, uh, which will often get talked about in the secondary literature. Uh, uh, he went in hard to third base. Third baseman didn't like it. Took a swing at Charleston. Charleston hit back. Then the third baseman's brother jumps out of the stands. He's a he turns out to be a Cuban soldier, and that there's a melee. Right. All all we know for sure from the pictures that we that Charleston has at least in his scrapbook is he's walking off the field and the guy who you fought against is getting carried off in a stretcher. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, anyway, that's always, yeah, no, that's the story that we hear is that Charleston more than acquitted himself in that hostile situation <laughs> in that environment. Uh, you could tell that he was accustomed to using his hands to defend yeah. himself. And again, I think it goes back to a guy who was 15 years old. I still can't get over that 15 yeah. years old enlisting yeah. in the army. Yeah. So at 15, and I think it does speak again to, again, just 
his persona. Yeah. His good luck mindset. Persona. Yeah. Good luck to his persona for sure. He was, um, he had a military style of leadership going forward. And whether that would have happened without him actually being in the military, I don't know. But certainly he was a guy, they say, he was like Lombardi, you know, to be on time is be five minutes too late kind of thing. Um, very strict in how he ran his team. He became a manager in 19, at the age of 27 in 1924 with the Harrisburg Giants. Um, the way he ran his team, it was, it was strict. He was the authority. There wasn't any messing around. Um, and that, that I think reflects some of that kind of military style. Uh, at the same time, he was going to be at the front of the line if there was any trouble. You know, he was, he was a general who would lead his troops into battle. He would not lead from behind. He would lead from behind. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and you, you, you mentioned him playing in Cuba. And he played on the great Santa Clara team. Mm-hmm. Right. And the 1923-24 uh, Santa Clara team that he played on is oftentimes hailed as the greatest baseball team in Cuban baseball history. Mm-hmm. They dominated the league to the point that they basically just awarded them the title almost halfway through the season because they were just dominating people and say, okay, the season's over with, y'all win. That team was really special. Like you said, it was a great team. They, they ended the season, just as you said, prematurely. They had it wrapped up. They started a new special championship season after that, and the Santa Clara won that too. Um, they, were, they were unstoppable. That outfield that Charleston was in with a guy named Pablo Mesa and another fellow mm-hmm. named Alejandro Ohms. Yes. Um, uh, was is regarded as the outfield. It's sort of the quintessential uh, outfield in Cuban baseball history. Uh, and there were other great Negro League stars in that team. Oliver Marcel, who was a third baseman with a very, very bad temper. He made Charleston look like uh, <laughs> <laughs> a very, very good team. Uh, uh, and that's forward. the ghost, folks, for those who may be hearing that name. Oliver the Ghost Marcel. Now, was it Marcel who bit the nose off somebody or somebody bit the nose off it of Marcel? It was actually the ghost that got a, the tip of his nose yeah. bitten off, which makes for another great story because Oliver was a good-looking guy. And he was very, very vain. Yeah. And apparently in a dice fight, he gets the tip of his nose bitten off and he was never the same as a player after that. Really? Because he was so, so conscious of the fact that he had been somewhat dismembered by having the tip of his nose uh, bitten off that he could never get over that. And folks, we're talking about one of the greatest third basemen, not in Negro Leagues history, but in baseball history when we talk about the ghost. Yeah, the ghost was something special. And, but he was never the same after that fight because of somewhat of the vainness that he had and now all of a sudden he's been disfigured, I should say. It's probably the way, the way a better, tell, better term. The way you tell the story, it's like a fairy tale. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> the dangers of vanity, you know, wrapped up into one little story. Absolutely. That's, I like that. I, I tell people all the time, these stories are too good. You don't even have to make them up to, to make them good. Just tell the real story. And, and the story of, of Oliver the Ghost Marcel is one of those great stories about this amazingly gifted player who, again, gets into this fight, gets the tip of his nose bitten off, and after that becomes seemingly a shell of himself because of the fact that he had been 
uh, disfigured in this fight. So again, it's just one of those great stories. And I'm sure at some point on Black Diamonds, we'll talk a little bit more about Oliver the Ghost Marcel when we talk about some of the great third basemen who called the Negro Leagues home. You should. You absolutely should. Judy Johnson, another one of the great third basemen who played with Oscar, of course, on the Crawfords. Um, Marcel's a good example, though, but if people were to just Google around on Oscar, they might think that he was like Marcel, a really vain man or very, uh, you know, gotten a lot of fights. And like like you said before, uh, brooding, maybe a borderline psychopath is the is the description I've used of how he's thought of, not how yeah. he was. But Marcel, just read if you read through the literature, the the interviews that were done later with players, I think it's pretty unanimous that guys thought Marcel was kind of a, a mean guy <laughs> and maybe a bad guy. Like there were some quotes like so and so was a really a ba- actually a bad guy. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they said it about Marcel. I'd have to you could tell me, but they never say that about Charleston. No. Okay? So that, honestly, I've never heard anyone say that about Charleston. And, and this is from the likes of Monty Irvin, Buck O'Neill. Ted Double Duty Radcliffe. These are folks who knew Charleston and spent time with Charleston. And and then the flip side of it is he's managing two of the women when they play for the Indianapolis Clowns and and Mamie Peanut Johnson in particular, because I never got to meet Connie Morgan, but Mamie Peanut Johnson speaks of great fondness of Oscar Charleston as this nurturer. This guy who really taught the game treated her with great respect, uh, and she had nothing but the utmost in admiration for Charleston. Yeah, that's how she spoke about him to me, too. So she is consistent in that. That was 1954, the last year that Charleston managed. He died after that season, just a couple of weeks after the season ended, won the Negro American League Championship with the Clowns in 1954. Um, And there were two women on the team, Connie Morgan and Mamie Peanut Johnson, and yeah, they both, uh, well, uh, Connie Morgan in, in interviews before she died and Mamie Johnson more recently before she died, um, I talked about how, uh, what much of a father figure he was to them and how he kept, um, and made sure they were uh, 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 taken care of and were treated well and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Wouldn't necessarily have been the case in 1954 on a yeah. bus traveling around. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in, in your research, and I know this is probably a difficult question to ask. What was the most surprising thing that you learned about Oscar? Uh, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that his personality was much more pleasant than uh, than, than my initial research had led me to believe would be the case. So that that's number one. Um, and that's the most important thing, I guess I would say. I was Pleasantly surprised. I guess I'm a, I have a skeptical cast of mind. I thought I would go into this and think probably not as good as you know. <laughs> and uh, actually, I came out of it thinking, no, I think he was. I think he yeah. was. I think he was, uh, I think he was Willie Mays before Willie Mays. I think he was um, Barry Bonds before Barry Bonds, at least without the steroids. I think he was um, every bit the inner inner circle player that uh, we thought. But then I was surprised. Now that I'm now that I'm going on your question, <laughs> how much like he was really a good manager. You know, he was voted the best manager of all time in the Negro Leagues by one poll of ex-players. Ex-player Jimmy Crutchfield in an interview with journalist Stephen Banker. 1932, I was playing for the Pittsburgh Crawfords under Oscar Charleston. He was of the old school, rough and tough, and he didn't like little ball players. 
and I was the smallest man in baseball. And we were playing an exhibition spraying game in Monroe, Louisiana. And we went into the ninth inning. Our team was leading seven to six. The opposing team was at bat, last of the ninth. They had the bases full and two outs. Charleston turned to me in center field and motioned me over into left field. Well, I moved over. But this particular hitter hit a line drive into right center field, and it looked like the ball game. Well, I just tucked tail and started running. And I ran and made a leaping catch to retire the side and save the game. When we got into the club room, everybody else was changing clothes and chatting about the game. And one or two guys would say, a nice catch, crutch, something like that. But then the door opened and Oscar Charleston walked in without looking directly at me. He said, Crutchfield, you are fielding A. <laughs> now, the funny part about it was that he didn't compliment any ball player. I've seen Josh hit the ball, seemed like two miles. Charleston never said a word. But from that particular time on, I stood really big in his eyesight. And we were together for about seven years. You won four championships as a manager. And I was surprised to learn that I believe he was the first African-American to be paid to scout for a major league team uh, when, when Branch Rickey used him to scout for the Dodgers when Charleston was managing the Brooklyn Brown Dodgers, who were yes. a United States League team in, in Brooklyn at the time, which is a, a pioneering feat that he's never gotten any credit for. Um, no, no, he, he really hasn't. And we talked about this a little bit in the show Yeah, that he recommended Roy Campanella to sure. Branch Rickey. Yeah, they, they specifically asked Charleston to background Campanella for them and uh, were concerned that he was lying about his age. He was too big. He must have been much older. <laughs> no, he wasn't. Charleston, because he had been in Philadelphia while Campanella was coming up there, could speak precisely to that question and um, did extensive background research on Campanella. It was, it was just Charleston's luck. I'm, I'm sure I said on the show before with you, Bob, that in Campanella's autobiography, which I'm sure had a ghostwriter, um, Oscar Charleston is called Oscar Robertson in the autobiography. <laughs> you know, so he doesn't even get credit in, in Campanella. <laughs> uh, but that was not Oscar. It was not the big O. It, it wasn't the big O. No. <laughs> it was, it was Oscar. And then, so, yeah, those were surprising. Just the, the breadth of his resume. And the one other thing worth mentioning in this connection, as a manager, he was also a pioneer in this small but significant sense during the war, World War II. He was working as a civilian at the Quartermaster Depot, which made clothing for soldiers in South Philadelphia. The Quartermaster Depot was integrated uh, and it had a baseball team, which was integrated, played in the Industrial League in Philadelphia. And Charleston was a manager of that integrated baseball team in 1942, 43, 44, I think are the years on that. Again, pre-Jackie Robinson, 20-some years before you have your first um, black manager in so-called organized baseball. So um, – Man, that's a lot of stuff, you know? I mean, it really, it really is. And, and, I, and I hope it paints a wonderful picture of how Oscar Charleston really covers the spectrum as it relates to our game. Yeah. And, you know, and again, Buck O'Neill would say without hesitation, the greatest baseball player he ever saw. And it was always surprising to people because they were expecting to hear those more commonly known Negro League players. They were expecting to hear 
Josh Gibson or perhaps Cool Papa Bell, yeah. guys like that who were became such transcending names. And, and the thing that strikes me about Oscar, he was seemingly always a part of some great teams. You know, he, he was part of some great teams and he was typically the star amongst yeah. those great teams, you know, particularly early on. And then, of course, as he starts to age, starts to age a little bit, other guys start to step in. But he was still, even as an aging ball player, was still dominant. Even in 1932, right? So he is tabbed by Gus Greenlee to manage and really put together the roster for the Pittsburgh Crawfords. Greenlee is going to move the Crawfords into the big time in 1932. Even then, when he adds Page and Gibson and Cool Papa Bell comes a little bit later and so on, he's the star for at least a year, maybe two, before Page and Gibson get the torch. Page in particular, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for a while, you look at those old, look at those old newspaper clippings from the Pittsburgh Courier and other places. Charleston Crawford is coming to town. Austin, the picture is going to be of Oscar Charleston. You know, uh, they're still spelling Satchel's name with two L's. It takes a while for you know them to even get Page's name right. So you're right. And then before 1932, in the 20s, he's the most popular player um, in in the Negro Leagues. I mean, that's yeah. That's, I, I I I kind of say oftentimes that Oscar Charleston and Bullet Rogan were the two first, what I would characterize as superstars mm. from the Negro Leagues. They emerged. There were other great stars in the Negro Leagues in that inaugural season, but Charleston became, you know, one of the early superstars along with Rogan. And, yeah. and so it was only fitting that the two of them had played together there in the Philippines of all places, and neither one of them were playing the position that they would ultimately be known for because, again, Charleston was pitching and Rogan was catching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what talent. You're right. It's interesting. Yeah, the, the two great superstars of the 1920s were together on the same regimental team in 1914 in the Philippines. It's pretty pretty remarkable it actually is it's pretty it, it is pretty special and, and so and so was oscar charleston and and jeremy i i want to thank you for giving up some of your time today to talk about the immortal oscar charleston and our goal is to not have him be known as the greatest forgotten player. That's right. <laughs> uh, we want people to know who Oscar Charleston was and that there's a real reason that Bill James has him at number four as the all-time greatest player in baseball history and that my friend Joe Posnanski has him at number five in his Baseball 100 greatest players of all time and that there was a reason that Buck O'Neill called him the greatest baseball player that he ever saw. And there's a reason that we have him in center field in the form of a life-size statue here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Because as the young folks would say, Oscar Charleston was the truth. <laughs> that would have been a better title. I should have used that for the <laughs> No, man. Thank you, Jeremy, so much for being a part of Black Diamonds and helping shine more light on Oscar Charleston. The book again is called Oscar Charleston, The Life and Legend of Baseball's Greatest Forgotten Player. It is written beautifully by author Jeremy Beer. Jeremy, thank you again for being a part of Black Diamonds. 
Thank you. It's my honor. Coming up next week on Black Diamonds, we profile the second man on the moon, Larry Doby. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SiriusXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnio Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen, and vice president of sports programming, Chris Eno. SiriusXM Podcasts.